Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests, and those of you who the funny animal hands, welcome! The reason I've gathered you here today is to witness the exploration of the next great frontier. Here we are, 220 million years in the Earth's past, give or take a day. Let's have some fun creating the future, shall we? Hi, everyone. I'm Christy Smithers, an assistant here at the Institute. We're just about ready for you next door. But before we go in to see today's presentation, here's a message from my boss, the head of the Imagination Institute. W Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 267 for the week of March 25th, 2012. I'm pleased to share an interview this week with someone whose incredible talents in storytelling are not done with pictures or words, but through his music. Bruce Broughton has received 20 Emmy and numerous Grammy Awards as well as an Academy Award nomination for his television and motion picture work. And he's also composed and conducted scores for Disney animated films such as The Rescuers Down Under and Bambi 2. His incredible music can also be found throughout the Disney theme parks for attractions such as Ellen's Energy Adventure, The Timekeeper, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, and most recently, Spaceship Earth. He'll share stories about working on the films and in the theme parks, including the processes, inspiration, differences, and experiences, which may just make you appreciate these incredible works of art even more. I'll have the answer and winner for last week's Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week and pose a new one for your chance to win a Disney prize package. I'll then have a couple of quick announcements before playing more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Oftentimes, the key to telling a good story on film, TV, or in three dimensions at a Disney theme park is through the accompanying music. From scores to songs, they help to direct and define the experience. And one of the most versatile composers of our time is Bruce Broughton, whose work can be found in every modern medium, from theatrical films to TV to the stage and even in computer games. He has multiple Emmy Awards as well as more than 20 Emmy nominations, Oscar nomination, a Grammy nomination, and has worked with the best and brightest in the industry. And his work can also be found not only in Disney films, but in the theme parks as well. Beautiful, majestic, and memorable, his music continues to delight fans of every age. So today, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome composer, conductor, and orchestrator, Bruce Broughton to the WDW Radio Show. Mr. Broughton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I, again, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk with me today. And, and, I, and there's so much that I want to talk to you about because your career has spanned so many different genres and mediums and decades. But I did want to talk briefly about your early background and how you sort of got started with music. You know, was it one of those your parents sit you down in front of a piano, like it or not, at age three? Or was it something you always had a love for? Well, I had a musical family. Um my grandfather was a composer. I had an uncle who was a songwriter. An aunt was a pianist. My parents could both um, play piano and play brass instruments. My brother's a uh, composer, trombone player. Uh, my family worked for the Salvation Army, which is a musical organization um, probably best known for their bands on the street years ago. But they still have some substantial... Um, uh, musical organizations, and that was basically where I began my first musical education when I was a little kid learning to play a trumpet, but at the same time I learned to play the piano. And music was the thing that everybody understood, and that was the one thing that was encouraged. Um, actually, I wasn't interested in being a musician, I was interested in being an animator, but um, nobody quite figured out what that was in my family, so I, I discontinued into music. 
And I never had any intention of being a composer. I, I really went into composition because when I went to school, I, I had no idea. When I went to the university, I had no idea what I wanted to um, major in, so I thought I would take music since it was familiar. And I didn't know much about composition, so I took that, thinking that if I stuck around in school long enough, I'd find out what I really wanted to do. But I ended up being a composer, which turned out to be quite okay. So I've, I've spent years doing that. Yeah, I, I think um, going into music was definitely the right choice <laughs> because of, of what has become of it. So your uh, your parents' influence and direction certainly helped guide you. But it seems that you really started to break uh, into the industry early on in TV. How did you get started working in and for television? I was very fortunate. Right out of college, um, I got a job working for CBS Television Music Department, which doesn't exist anymore. But it was a department that um, had been put together to provide music for the shows that CBS produced. And it had been in existence for several years. In fact, Jerry Goldsmith had been there before me about 10 years earlier. But he started in radio. But we started doing basically the same job, which was working as music supervisors, providing music from libraries, from music libraries for the shows that we produced. And um, in Gunsmoke and Hawaii Five-O and uh, Wild Wild West and shows like this, uh, CBS would hire uh, composers for a certain number of episodes during the year. And for those episodes that they didn't need to have original music on, they would have the supervisors, like myself, um, select the music. So we were basically cue selectors, music supervisors. We would find the right music to go into the scenes, and we would edit them and, and uh, make sure that they fit. And the uh, I did that for about 10 years, working also at the same time as part of the management. I was manager of the music department, and then I was assistant director of music. Um, but it was a great way of learning how music worked in film, because frankly, if it didn't work, you just picked another piece. It was, you know, there was no trauma about it. And the idea of cutting music up and extending it and, and uh, taking things out and putting things back in became pretty familiar. And I got to realize that music for this medium was very different than writing concert music, where in concert music you write it and it sticks. It's supposed to be that way. Nobody asks you to replace anything. Nobody asks you to take anything out. Nobody asks you even whether it works or not. But in, in film and television... Um, if the music doesn't work, that is, if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do dramatically, then you have to change it. You have to modify it. You have to fix it until it until it works. It's a fairly objective kind of medium. And uh, to be able to spend so many years doing that was really great, um, great preparation for being a composer. So when I left CBS, not wanting to get into management any further than I was, um, I was familiar with television, and I went into the medium that I knew best. And I got busy working over at Universal Studios with um, the show Quincy. And then uh, many of the guys who had been working on Gunsmoke, uh, some of them found their way into the series Dallas. And the guy who wrote the theme for Dallas actually used to work in the CBS music department. He he was originally the copyist, but he left copying and became a composer, Jerry Immel. He did the uh, theme for Dallas and a lot of other TV shows. So we were all sort of like a big happy family working on shows with new with new stories and, and new situations but in a familiar um familiar people it was you know it was very nice it was very comfortable and a great way to work and a great way to learn and while you're doing the tv one of the projects that you worked on uh, back in around 1985 in the mid-80s was the steven spielberg amazing stories <clears throat> excuse me series which was really you know, it was a who's who of who's who because you had not only Steven Spielberg and Clint Eastwood and Martin Scorsese and Robert Zemeckis, but composer-wise, you composed scores along with, again, names like John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and, and James Horner and Danny Elfman. Tell us about the, the Amazing Story series and how that came to be. Well, the Amazing Stories, because it was Steven Spielberg, I think this was Steven's first foray into television. Um, it was a very high-end kind of a project, and um, by that time I had gotten into features. I think I had already done Silverado and done Young Sherlock Holmes, which Stephen produced, and um, a few other things. So I was now not just a television writer, I was a feature composer, and those were the guys that they were trying to get. So they, you're, you're right, I mean, Danny Elfman, James Horner, uh, John Williams, everybody, was, everybody who had done features was working in this, um, on this series. And um, 
I think actually I did more of them. I think I did four of them. I think I, I hold the record for doing as many as anybody else. Um, but they were all really interesting. They were they were also done by either feature directors, or they were done um, by new directors who were given their first opportunity to direct by Stephen. For instance, I worked with a guy named Todd Holland on Todd's first uh, on his first um, commercial productions. He and he was fresh out of UCLA, but he had been his work had been seen by Stephen, and and um, his shows were things that I did. And Todd and I became friends and. And um, I've stayed friends for all those years because of amazing stories. But there were a lot of other directors like, I remember Peter Himes and Zemeckis and people like this were also doing it. So it, it was sort of like movies for television, except in a, um, a half-hour format. And um, it was fun because they were all very, very different. The shows were all very different. You didn't know whether you were going to be working on a, um, on a Western-type show or a, a cops and robbers kind of show, except that they all had the amazing stories twist. They all had some sort of fantasy element in it, and uh, it was just, you know, it was just a lot of fun. And I want to touch on the films as well, too, because, again, you mentioned Silverado, a 1985 Lawrence Kasdan film. This was your first real major film score, and for your first score, you also get an Oscar nomination. Can you tell us how you made that transition to film and how you got the, 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 um, the job of doing the score for Silverado? Well, I had done... Um a lot of Western work. I mean, when I was at CBS, I worked on Gunsmoke. In fact, Gunsmoke was my first first commercial credit as a composer. And after leaving CBS, I worked on How the West Was Won, and I had done a miniseries called The Blue and the Gray. So this 19th century music was pretty familiar to me. And um, I had done, at that time, a lot of television. I was doing miniseries as well as TV movies. And my agent at the time said, um, there's a Western over at Columbia uh, that Lawrence Kasdan's doing. And he said, it's kind of a long shot, but what the heck, you know. So we got a meeting, and um, I got the script. It was a very thick, very dense script. And when I say dense, I mean that it, was, it wasn't one of these uh, just sit down and read the story kind of scripts. It was a script that really had a lot of stuff in it. I mean, the, the, the dialogue was very carefully driven, the, the story was very carefully made, the descriptions were very careful, and, you know, I, I liked it immediately, because I thought, boy, this has got some real meat to it. So the meeting I had was with um, Larry Kasdan and his brother Mark, who's a co-writer, and um, the editor, Carol Littleton, and usually these meetings take about half an hour, 45 minutes. We were there for a good two hours talking about the script. He hadn't started shooting yet. He was really just looking to find somebody who could do the music. But the the, um, the main thing was, I think he was looking for somebody who understood his story. And I seemed to understand his story. We hit it off very well. Uh, he still had other people to talk to, other people to look at. And um, frankly, taking a chance on me was taking a chance because I didn't have a big feature background. I had, in fact, two features behind me. One had been for Billy Graham, the evangelist, and the other one was um, a fantasy ice pirates that had not done great business. So um, my background for him was essentially the, the television stuff. So he decided that uh, he would work with me, and he, he thought that it would work out really well, and as it turned out, it worked out very well. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I continued to be excited through the entire project. I, I went up a couple of times to Santa Fe to watch them shoot and I, I met the guys I saw what he was doing and, and um, I don't know it was just it was just a great project from beginning to end well and you mentioned like you said the blue and the gray and your experience working on westerns you know in the mid 80s the, the western genre had died out from the popularity that it had decades earlier how do you approach a, a genre of music like that for one that is really not very familiar, hasn't really been uh, seen a lot in either TV or motion pictures? And how do you sort of mo- make it modern enough for a, a mid-80s audience? Well, actually, I didn't. Um, he, he was very, I mean, he, Larry Kasdan was very specific about what he wanted. He felt that he was making the original Western. He was making a Western for people who had never seen Westerns. And when he told me that, I said, well, you know, like who? And he said, well, think about it. He said, kids, um, 
kids haven't seen westerns. You and I grew up with the westerns because that was from our time. But our kids haven't seen westerns. They haven't made a western for years. So this is a western for people who have never seen a western. And to that point, he had pretty much put everything in a traditional western that you could put into a movie. I mean, it has the it has the shootout. It has the good guy, the bad guy, the ranchers versus the uh, um, you know the, the farmers or the cattlemen. You know, whatever it was. It, all the sort of standard cowboy things are, are in that movie. And he spent a lot of time looking at old movies, the old, the old John Ford movies and westerns, to see how they worked and what they had and uh, assembled. So when it came to the music, he said, I want a big traditional Hollywood score, western score. And I said, oh, okay. And immediately I thought of, the first thing I thought of was Jerome Moross for the big country, because that was the, the really first big outrageous Western score. There have been a lot of scores before that, of course, in all the Roy Rogers movies and, and um, you know, the John Ford movies and all that kind of stuff. But the one that was really most distinctive, that style to me that was Hollywood, was Jerry Moross. And then, of course, right after that was Elmer's score for um, Magnificent Seven. So with that as sort of a guideline, um, that was the score that I sat down to write. And I found that The Silverado was a very specific film. It was very powerful, uh, it was very much about friendship. It's about these four guys who meet and who try to go their separate ways, but they keep coming back as friends to get each other out of the or whatever the problems are. It was about family. It was about you know it had a lot of feeling in it, and it was a very positive film. Um, the good guys were really good, and the bad guys were really bad. So um, the score was made essentially for power and for energy. And, of course, I had a lot of energy because I was excited by doing this film. Um, and it just sort of turned out to be the way it turned out. But I, I don't think it's a... I never thought of it as a groundbreaking, groundbreaking score in terms of style. People like the score a lot, I think, because of the energy and uh, because of the good nature. I mean, even at the end of the film, um, the Kevin Costner character says, we'll be back. You know, the, the last line of the film is, we'll be back, which people, I think, think meant to be a sequel. But I, I think really what it was was, um, you know, we're not done with our story. We'll, we're going to come back. The family's going to get together again. The friends are going to reunite. Uh, we'll all see each other. It's going to have a cheery forever after, you know. Whereas Tombstone, which I did a few years later, is completely different. I mean, Tombstone is very dark. It's very melodramatic. It, uh, the good guys are bad guys. Um, the story is um, the story is you know not happy. It, it, it's about family, sort of, but it's really you know really black hat, black hat, and um, that was a much different score. It didn't have. I mean, it had a d different feel completely from what Silverado had. The two scores couldn't be more different, actually. And I think for many of us, as we grow up, we are influenced by uh, and attracted to stories or films or, or TV shows. Or, but you sort of, from a, a composer background, who were your inspirations? Not necessarily the, the films or the shows, but who as composers or arrangers were the people who you looked to as inspiration, both growing up and as you started working on your films? Well... To tell you, as far as films went, I don't think I was even aware of music in films until I was in my late teens. Um, and I consider this to be an advantage. When I went to see movies, I went to see movies to be entertained. And rarely did I ever, if ever, did I ever remember a piece of music in a film. Um, once I decided that I wanted to go into movies, the reason I wanted to go into movies was because I decided I wanted to write music that would have an effect on people, music that could move people, that people, that people could feel. And it pretty quickly came down to motion picture music because that was the kind of music that you know, they were taking in, uh, in movies. And so at that point, I started looking at, at the movies and started looking at television shows and started really listening to the music and trying to separate the music from the film, which for a while was kind of hard to do. But I never forgot that people in general watch movies and don't pay attention to the music. They just get manipulated by it. They just feel what, what that is. But once I started looking at the uh, looking at the movies and started listening to the movies, um, the guy who came up quickest on my screen was Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I remember being a student at USC taking a, a film class, uh, and part of the film class was to watch a movie every week. <clears throat> and I remember watching a couple of Jerry's movies, and I think, wow, man, that guy... That guy really can write, and 
the way he dealt with the drama and the way he dealt with the picture, I mean, that was, he was my hero immediately. And he, and he was to this day. I mean, I still think that Jerry had the best take on it. But I, I watched other guys. I, I watched uh, the way Mancini worked. And I, I watched, um, you know, John and, and Michelle Legrand and, and um, uh, I don't know, Larry Rosenthal and Lenny Rosenman and people like this. And I, I became aware of an awful lot of people, particularly once I worked at CBS, um, we would hire a lot of these people because CBS, for the time that I was there, was also starting to produce motion pictures. So we were hiring all these guys to be the composers of our films. Outside of films, the composers that I grew up with were um, uh, mostly the traditional classical composers. I, I went into college with what I call Tchaikovsky years. Um, I knew a lot of the Beethoven symphonies because I was a pianist. I was a good pianist, and I had grown up playing Rachmaninoff and Chopin and Beethoven and all this stuff, so I knew this music pretty well. Uh, I was just beginning to get into Stravinsky. I hadn't quite reached Bartok. Um, <clears throat> anything, anything later than that, when I went into college, I didn't know. When I got out of college, I had to learn it and soon became... Um, interested in it because I had to expand my techniques as, as I was learning to, to write for television and for movies. So I think that my education continued actually right up to the present time because I'm still finding new music and still looking at new techniques and seeing how people do things in order to expand what I do. Um, I, so, I mean, I have pretty, I guess what they would say, Catholic taste. I mean, I, I like a little bit of everything. There's not an awful lot of music that I don't like. Um, if I can find some music in it, I'll probably like it, regardless of what the technique is or who wrote it. Okay. Tell us um, tell us how you began to work for and with the Disney company and, and your first project there. Disney, I think... Well, let's see, the first project at Disney. Um, well, I, you know, I'm not really sure what my first project at Disney was. I do remember working on uh, getting a call after I did The Boy Who Could Fly for a um, theme park thing that Glenn Karen was um, directing. And um, that was called The Making of Me. <clears throat> and I think the reason I got that was because Jeffrey Katzenberg, who at that time was at Disney, really liked the score of The Boy Who Could Fly. And I think... Either my music or my name came up in, in, in a meeting, whatever it was, I got that show. I remember, I remember it being an interesting show, and it played for years and years and years, and it had one little piece of animation, it had one minute of animation, which was the first animation I ever did. But my the first real meeting I remember having at Disney, um, there were two of them, actually, I remember. One was having to do with the rescuers down under. I had finished Silverado, and it was a couple of years later, maybe five, six years later, and I got a call from Disney about this animated feature. Now, as I said earlier, when I was a boy, I wanted to be an animator. That was my big passion, and Walt Disney was my hero. So here I get a call to do a, an animated feature. A lot of composers at that time didn't like doing animation, and and the animation guys sort of came hat in hand when they approached a composer about doing one of their films. This film was supposed to be a, an adventure story. It had no songs in it. It was set in Australia. It was a sequel to a popular movie. And the question was, would you be interested in doing this? And I went, yeah, <laughs> you bet. I'd love to do this. You know, It just sounded great. And they were surprised by how enthusiastic I was. Around the same time, um, Jerry Goldsmith was supposed to do a theme park thing called, um, I think it was called Time After Time, uh, the, uh, the Timekeeper, something like that. It was a, it was a, um, one of those circle vision movies where you know, the, the uh, picture completely surrounds you. And Jerry fell out of it. And so I got the call to come and look at this thing, but I have an interest in doing a theme park thing. Well, I had already done the one, and it, you know, it turned out to be pretty good. So I went and I looked at the Circle Vision thing, and man, it was really a lot of fun. We were gonna, it was basically based in uh, France, and um, it was gonna be, it was gonna be performed in France. We were gonna record it in England, and, and so I looked at this thing, and I think, wow, this is really, this is really cool. And um, and I took to the people immediately. We all became really great friends immediately. Mm -hmm. 
that basically began a whole run of things I did in the theme parks. So with the animation of the rescuers down under, um, and then the theme park stuff, they all happened right around the same time, within a year or two of each other. And that became a, a big association with Disney. Right around that time, again, I, I couldn't tell you what year anything happened. I did more animation. I did two of the Roger Rabbit shorts. Um, I did a couple, a few years later, I did a couple of, um, uh, of animated movies that, for a different department. There were Three Musketeers with um, Mickey... Donald and Goofy, and I did the sequel to Bambi, Bambi 2, uh, all his features. And uh, and then I did some live-action movies, comedies, like um, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. I did the Homeward Bound movies. And these are the these are the movies that I find that, that um, most people in their 20s and 30s who know my music know me because of those things. Mm-hmm. They were basically kids' movies that they grew up watching when they were little. And, of course, kids like to watch the movies over and over and over and over again. So they became really familiar with the music. They became really familiar with the music and the characters, and they had this big warm spot. And very often I say, oh, yeah, I wrote the music to Homeward Bound or something like that. Go, oh, I love Homeward Bound. I love the story about the dogs. You know. So uh, it turned out to be turned out to be a really good association, not to mention all the zillions of people who go to the theme parks and see the music. Um, or hear the music, rather. And the, the, the things still play. They play well. They're, they're fun to watch. Yeah, I, I want to touch, I want to talk on the theme park music in a little more detail, but I do want to go back very quickly to Rescuers Down Under and working on the animated films, because as a composer, do you approach the animated films any differently? And is it any different than scoring a feature film, whether it be by process or otherwise? Well... Um, they can be different, um, it, and, and the styles are different. I mean, these days, um, most animation, most animated films look like live action because they're all um, computer generated. Um, but the films like Rescuers Down Under and the films before that that Disney was particularly known for were all drawn, the so-called 2D animation, and they can be different. I mean, you always have a choice of Mickey Mousing, um, which is to really point up the action, um, or you have the choice of leaving leaving the action by itself and letting it play in the background like you would with a live feature. Um, I, with, with the expertise of Disney and the techniques that they use, it's very often hard to tell um, in their animated movies. The, the ti- I mean, the, the timing is so carefully done that they, that they, even though they're drawn, they play as, as um, almost like live-action movies. So sometimes you might beef something up, you might point to uh, to an action or something, and, and you always have the choice of pointing to the action or leaving it alone and letting it play as a drama. In Rescuers Down Under, it's about 50-50. There's a lot of, um, there's a, a lot of playing to the action, but there's also a strong sense that it's a dramatic film, and it's an adventure. And um, so those were the choices. Were when around the same time I was supervising composer for another Spielberg thing for television called Tiny Tunes, Tiny Tune Adventures. And I'd done the theme for Tiny Tunes, and then I, it was my job to hire composers to find and hire composers who could write in the style of uh, Carl Stalling. And I found a few guys who could do it, sort of. Mostly, mostly the guys I hired really couldn't do it, but they came as close to it as they possibly could. But that was a completely different style. That style, uh, which was not nearly as fluid as the Disney style, um, could take a lot more Mickey Mousing, a lot more poking, a lot more very specific uh, musical gestures than the Disney's films could. Um, I think it's more just it has to do with the style, not only of the drawing, but also the style of the producing and what people want out of it. Um, sometimes, sometimes in, in the animated pictures, they don't want any Mickey Mouse scene at all. They just they just want you to play the backgrounds. Um, and it's interesting to see the old films like uh, Tom and Jerry, as opposed to the old Mickey Mouse films, as opposed to the things that came out of Paramount. How those composers solved their problems, what they chose to play, and what they chose to ignore. So yeah, yeah it, you know, basically you. I think you deal with every project basically on its own merits, and, and you try to 
you try to devise a style for whatever it is that tells the story the best. Because uh, I think the, the Rescuers Down Under was an interesting film in that, like you said, it was just straight straight orchestral score. There were no songs, I, and I wonder if that sort of affected the film anyway. But I know in, when watching it, I sort of got that sense it was a very kind of, especially in things like Cody's Flight, it was kind of that, that Carl Stalling-like approach to when things get fast. When, you know, if somebody runs, the music runs. If somebody falls, the music falls. And it very much had that growing up with Warner Brothers cartoon feel to me at some points. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a, a lot of um, paying maybe a little bit too much attention to the action. Um, the, the point you made about the fact they didn't have any songs it may not have been a great thing for the film because the film didn't do so well. And after that, all the all the uh, animated films that Disney made all had songs in it. Soon after that, and right before that, and soon after that, were all the Alan Menken song, Alan Menken song scores, like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, because they found that they that those things played the best. But uh, in terms of the actual movie and the production of it, I mean, Rescuers is still a stunning movie. Um, it's incredible. Animation and you know it, it's a really entertaining picture. Um, and I say I, I hear from a lot of young adults in their twenties and thirties that they watched that picture forever, over and over and over again when they were kids. And the score is beautiful too. I mean, so I mean they released the score on CD because I think it's very much a testament to the music that you created. But you also touched on the theme parks, and now you're sort of going into a whole, at least from an outsider's point of view, what is probably a very different type of a medium because now it's not something that's a TV show or a film. You're now creating for Disney theme parks. So let me ask you this: Had you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland before you were sort of transi- transitioned into beginning to compose for them? You know, I was at Disneyland three days after it opened. <laughs> <laughs> I was ten years old, and uh, it opened on a Sunday, and I was there on Wednesday. Um, yeah, I mean, I told you, I was a, I was a big. Disney fan when I was a kid. So um, I remember watching the TV show, which was called Disneyland, and, and watching Walt uh, market this um, thing that he was going to make. So when it was open, I was ready to go. And um, I, I, you know, I, again, I, I did that as a kid. I mean, I, I'm acting just as a kid, not as somebody who was um, noticing how things were put together or, or the technical stuff of it. I was just in, enjoying it as a little kid. When I got to do it as an adult, that was a little bit different. I was sort of like a, having my cake and eating it, too. Um, what was I going to say about the theme parks? Oh, the, the interesting thing about the theme parks, I found that theme parks and animation have, um, have some similarity in that they're both, for me, extremely enjoyable projects to work on. Um, mainly because they're both very well prepared and both very well thought out. I mean, you can't make an animated film uh, without sitting down and figuring out what all the scenes are going to be because all those scenes have to be created, whether they're created by hand as a drawing or whether they're created by a computer image. They all have to be figured out and timed and and really thought out. And and, um, you can't just sit and, and reshoot a scene if it doesn't work well. You know, you have to figure it out beforehand. The theme parks are very much similar. Um, the theme parks move a lot of people. They um, literally put people in little bins and, and take them around in rides, or they put them in front of a theater, or they sit them in a theater, or they put them in front of a screen, or they, or they whatever they do. But they're used to watching, uh, moving big masses of people in and out. And all of that stuff has been figured out, timed, uh, constructed, um, thought about, worried about, uh, safety considerations, um, time considerations, entertainment considerations. I mean, all this stuff has been worked out by the time you get there as a composer. And when they give you the pitch of the show, you never quite know what you're going to be getting because you don't know whether it's a sit-down and look-at show or whether it's a ride or whether it's a... Um, show that has a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You just don't know quite what the medium is. And very often on, on these theme park shows, I got such a big kick out of them because I'd sit there listening to the pitch, listening to somebody try to explain to me what the show was, thinking, I don't have a clue as to what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the heck I'm going to be doing on this thing. And eventually just working it out, figuring it out, asking questions, working with people, 
um, devising themes, devising methods, devising ways of doing it. I mean, it, for instance, I, the, the last thing I worked on was um, Spaceship Earth at Epcot. And Spaceship Earth was different from the ones that I'd done before because it's an actual ride. You actually sit in a little cart and it takes you around and, and you see all the things. But it, it had one particular thing in it that um, was odd in that you go from room to room and each room represents a different period in history. You go from the Romans to the Egyptians to the Phoenicians or an opposite order, whatever it is. And occasionally the ride stops. It breaks down. <laughs> Well, at least I thought it broke down. Well, it turns out it doesn't break down. Occasionally the ride will stop because um, sometimes if, um, if, if, if they have to get people in, into the cart in a safe manner, like if they're handicapped or, or something like that, they have difficulty moving you know, and, and they have ambulatory problems, they will stop the ride until they get the people safely on it and then they'll start the ride again. So this stopping is part of the ride and if you stop in between two different rooms two different um, periods you're stopping basically in between two different kinds of music so you're hearing two musics going at the same time what do you do about that and um, so I had to figure out how to go from room to room to room to room knowing that you could stop at any one point and hear this music with that music and only hear it as a sequence maybe four or five pieces after that well I'd never had that problem before um, in other ones, you just sort of have to figure out how to make it sound. There's one show we did, um, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, where you have to make it sound like a live show. It's a 3D thing, and, and they want to make it sound like a, a live show. So you, you do the show in a way that it sounds like there's a pit band playing there, you know, and it's falling apart or something, but there's also underscore under it. So all these little things are, are things that are unique to this, the specific shows, and they're not like the, the kinds of problems you would have working on a motion picture or a TV show. They're just very, very different, but with people who um, really have, I mean, you can really ask them any question because they've probably figured out the answer. If they don't know the answer, they look to you for, for some sort of help and guidance. It's, uh, it's really a great group of people to work with on theme parks and animation. ask you specifically about a couple of the attractions you mentioned but overall when and where are you brought into the creative process of putting the attraction together how far along are they or do you have any sort of creative input as they are sort of going through initial concepts no generally on a theme park thing you brought in towards the end i mean they've done um, i mean sometimes they have to build the room sometimes they have to build the stage sometimes they have to build the ride um for instance, in Epcot, they have Ellen's Energy Adventure. That, uh, that's a huge room with people movers, uh, each of which holds 100 people. We have six of them. And that moves around a big space with screens overhead telling a big story about the creation of the universe and all that. Um, there's no way they would bring a composer in before that. They wouldn't need his services until they had really figured out what they were going to do. So um, in order to fit the ride, uh, to know how much time you need to get the people from the pre-show into the show itself to fill up the people movers and, and to get the ride started. All that stuff has to be timed. Um, by the time the composer gets there, they've figured that out and they, they give you the numbers to work around. With a movie, it's different. As I said, on Silverado, um, you get into the movie sometimes before they shoot it. Sometimes you get in right after they're done. Sometimes you get in at the very end. Sometimes you get a little bit of time and sometimes you don't. But on, on, um, usually on animated things and on, on uh, theme parks, you come in towards the end. And so as long as you mentioned Ellen's Energy Adventure, that is one of my favorite pieces of music because it's just uh, it's a beautiful melody. It play, it's part of the theme. It's part of the background. They play it in sort of in Future World as part of the, the background music as well, too. And it's a long piece, too. It's about seven minutes. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, I think Ellen has about the longest, um, most fully realized pieces um, of any of the things that I've done.
mean, you have to figure it's a huge room. They can they can fit 600 people, and so they time it for 600 people. I mean, sometimes, of course, there's a lot fewer than that, but still, it's time for that. So the music plays five. I think it's actually about five and a half minutes long. It's a long piece, and which is great. It's, for me, it's like a concert. You know, you just sit there and you have to listen to the music. <laughs> it is, it's beautiful because it's it's present throughout the the entire attraction. And yeah. Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, I love as well because I think there's, you know, because it's supposed to be and you're this very sort of prestigious uh, imagination institute, it, it's very sort of dignified, but there's a lot of sort of whimsy uh, attached to it too. Um, yeah, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience is um, it's kind of a silly show. Yeah, yeah, gone. It, it's a it's an award show gone crazy, but um, it's uh, it's fun because they, it actually is, is put on a um, it's placed on a stage that moves, and um, because when the kid rips the you know rips the theater out, you've got to have the impression that the whole theater is moving. So they you know they go to great pains <clears throat> to make it feel as real as it. To possibly can, and they do a 3D show to try and make it look as though it's actually happening in front of you with all the 3D stuff coming at you, you know, the animated effects and everything else. It's, you know, quite a production. And as you said, Spaceship Earth, I assume one of your most recent or more recent works in the theme park, this was a Bruce Broughton project, from what I understand, from beginning, you wrote it, you conducted, you composed it, a 63-piece orchestra, 24-voice choir, again, talking about a very majestic beautiful score how did you have to approach it because again you have to to represent different periods you have to be able to you, the music acts as the transition element but between all those different scenes As I said, the, the uh, technical problem was um, if you got stuck between two time periods and you had to hear two pieces of music. So, uh, so I had to write the music that um, three or four pieces could all be played together. And um, there were, you know, there are other considerations like little things that the people would think about when you go up the the ramp into the attraction. Uh, they have a safety announcement because they don't want people getting off the. Um, off the tram. Um, they have visitors from all over the world, not all of them speak English, and they want to provide for the safety of everybody. So if the tram should stop, and it does stop, if, if it should stop in the dark, they don't want people to get scared and be terrified and jump out. So the, um, the music, which is offering a certain kind of atmosphere and a certain kind of ambience, also has to be of a type that permits the safety um, message to be able to come across and also doesn't create so much fear and anxiety in people that they're going to, you know, jump and try and <laughs> get, get out the exit door. I mean, you know, it's, it's really very specific kinds of things. Um, in Spaceship Earth, there are three or four areas where the music um, folds into itself. Like at the very beginning, Egypt, Phoenicia, Rome, all those things can be played together. Uh, shortly after that, when you go through the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, um, much of that music is is playing at the same time against itself. There are one or two or sometimes even three pieces playing simultaneously, um, depending upon where your eye is in the room. And then after that, I think there's another sequence, um, more contemporary, where the music, again, has to be played all at the same time. Um, and then every once in a while, you come into the big room with the big theme and the choir going and the vista of the earth and all that stuff. And then as you slope down, there's a little cartoon thing that happens in the um, in the seat that you're sitting in, which plays against the stuff that you just saw in the in the um, vista of the earth and all that. You know, it, it's I mean, it's, <laughs> it's quite a project. Let's just say that. If it works well, I'm, I'm happy.
thing I didn't the one thing I didn't account for, unfortunately. I took the ride after after it was installed. The one thing I didn't account for was the actual sound of the tram. Because it makes a lot of noise. And I thought, boy, if I had just paid attention to that I would have I would have at least voiced things a little bit differently. But overall I think it works fine. Again, it's spectacular. And did it present any specific challenge or as you're going through, again, you're representing different periods throughout history, so you also brought in not just standard orchestral instruments, but you bring in recorders and lutes and harpsichords, things that are not really present in in modern music. Does that present any interesting challenges to you bringing those instruments in? Yeah, like who's going to play it? I mean, (laughs) who's going to play crumb horn, you know? (laughs) Um, it turns out that there are people here, particularly in Los Angeles, um, that uh, play a lot of different kinds of instruments. Recorders are, are pretty easy to find, but the lutes and the crumb horns and the sack butts and things like that, the really old instruments from, uh, from the Middle Ages, you have to find people who, who can get around on those. But you do, and uh, uh, then it's there forever. I mean, the, the, there's one of the pieces that has a... Um, um, they call it a, oh, a high tenor. Um, a, a, what do they call them? A counter tenor, singing. It sounds like a woman's voice, but it's actually a guy singing. Well, the fellow who sang that was Grant Gershon, who leads the, the L.A. Master Chorale. He's a tremendous choral person in his own right. You know, great conductor and all that kind of stuff. But he sings, and he happens to sing counter tenor. So you find the guys who can do this stuff, and. and um, Everybody's anonymous on these things. You never know quite who's playing on it, and uh, even who wrote the score. I mean, somehow people have gotten to know who wrote the score to some of these things, but you know there are no credits anywhere. It's just, it's just something that's supposed to be entertaining for anybody who comes in from anywhere. And while you created original music for Honey I Shrunk the Audience and Ellen and One Man's Dream and and some some of the other ones like um, Timekeeper and Making of Me. Tomorrow, uh, Spaceship Earth was an attraction that was present for a number of years. Had a iconic, had an iconic song attached to it and theme in Tomorrow's Child. Was did that play into any decision making when you were creating a new song, or is it something completely new? You sort of discount what was there before because it was one thing that a lot of people who are nostalgics certainly had an attachment to. No, I can understand that. I, I think that by the time I got there, there was really no con- no conversation about it with me. Um, I um, I think by the time I got on to the process, they had already decided that they uh, were going to have a completely new show. So um, all the music from that first attraction uh, just you know was was replaced, and, um, and that's true. I mean, people have. Big association to this. I mean, I know people who go to the parks over and over and over and over and over again. They all have their favorite shows, and anytime you, anytime you tinker with it, somebody's going to get offended or going to get upset or they're going to miss something. I hear from people who ask me all the time about the music from um, the Timekeeper over in Europe because that show closed, I think, two or three years ago. But there are still people who love the theme and they, they like to be able to get it. So Disney has, I think, in the last few years, perhaps the last five or six years, started releasing music from um, a lot of their uh, attractions that you can buy in the, in the parks. But even then, you know, it's, it's something that people grow up with. And as I say, I, I was at Disneyland three days after it opened. I was 10 years old. Well, I'm a lot older than 10 now. And um, I remember a lot of those experiences. I remember how exciting it was as a little boy to go through. And I remember, you know, I remember this show and that show and perhaps this theme. Or, you know, I used to watch the Mickey Mouse Club when I was a little kid. And um, I have a lot of associations with a lot of that stuff. So, yeah, it's you realize that when you're taking part in this, you're taking part sometimes in uh, a piece of somebody's life. Well, and, a, and in the case of something like O Canada, somebody else's work, because Your Lifetime Journey was originally written by Robert Moline. When they redo, um, when they later redo it, you rearrange somebody else's work. And now you also have to keep in consideration the song that you are writing is one that's going to have to reflect accurately the people and their culture. So how do you take Bob Moline's song, make it your own, make it unique, while still keeping that in mind as well? Well, it was a great song. I mean, that one, I was glad they, they, they kept that song. Um, I tried to refer to it in the score um, so that when the song came in, it would feel as though it was actually 
somewhat familiar I mean, for the people who haven't seen it before. But as far as the Canadian stuff, um, my mother is Canadian. I, three of my grandparents are Canadian. I mean, my family is predominantly Canadian. And um, it wasn't too much of a stretch to go from Vancouver or Calgary to Nova Scotia and, and um, know where I was, you know, because I have a lot of family from up there. You said something before that that stuck in my head, which was there were times that you were watching movies and the music almost seemed to be so well integrated into the film that you almost didn't notice it and that, that it blends in. Now as a composer, do you is that what you look for? Do you look for that music to be sort of transparent through whether it's a film or an attraction or is it really meant to now kind of drive the story and, and the action and maybe add another layer to it? Well, no, when I was a kid, it wasn't that I almost didn't notice it. I didn't notice it. I mean, I really did not notice it. I was, I was being worked on dramatically by the picture, and the music was just one of the elements. And I'm aware that when people go to the movies these days, that um, a lot of them really do not notice the music. They, they're just affected by it. Um, I, when I go back and look at these pictures now as an adult, particularly with one who has you know, a background in music, I'm sometimes surprised to hear how the music is almost screaming at you. You know, I mean, how could you miss this? But you get so involved with the picture, you don't really pay attention to it. So the, the job for the composer is to advance the story, is to make the story um, as much as it can possibly be. If, if the characters are not romantic enough, maybe you need to make them more romantic or more scary or, or happier or sadder or faster or slower, whatever it is. There's stuff that the music can do. Um, I don't have any problem with having the music to be uh, of sufficient quality that it, it can stand on its own, but it can't overtake the drama, and it can't overtake the picture. And if the music is, is too interesting, uh, that means you've probably overshot the picture, you know, you, because, or you've forgotten what the music was supposed to be there for. The music is supposed to be there only to support the film, because film music is only accompaniment. It's accompaniment to some drama, and if, if the drama weren't there, the music wouldn't be there, and the music wouldn't be what it was. I mean, if, if I had sat down to write a piece that sounded like Silverado on my own, just for the heck of it, it would have sounded very, 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 very different, because Silverado or Tombstone or Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, any of these things were my reactions to a story and to the movie. And any particular part in it, the, heart, the, uh, the fast part, the slow part, the exciting parts, those were all my responses to what was going on on the screen and the story I was trying to help tell. So um, I think the kind of music that I like the least in pictures is um, the, the music that really doesn't say much of anything. You know, that's just there as, a, as an alternative to sound effects. Um, it's there because maybe the director got nervous and thinks that he needs to have something to move the picture along. I, mean, I, I don't know, you know, but I, I, music that says nothing to me says nothing and why do you want it you know why do you want it in your picture why do you want to listen to it why do you want to write it for me i would rather be able to say and do something and the music that i like the most the composers i that i find that i'm most drawn to either of my friends or contemporaries or people who went before me are people who really are able to make a point musically uh, and dramatically at the same time all right, so I have to ask you a final question. Since you are a Disney Parks fan, is there one attraction maybe that you really enjoy? Or more importantly, is there a piece of music, not your own, in a Disney theme park attraction that really stands out to you? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> that's really a hard one. I, um, Yeah, I, 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 don't know, I, I don't know how I could answer that. Um, I probably would be drawn to um, some of the older stuff, to tell you the truth, because I would, like everybody else, I would have my own associations, and um, 
I don't know. I mean, we were there a, a couple of months ago and watched a um, spectacular show uh, at the end of the day at um, California Adventures. And it had a lot of the uh, Alan Menken music and it had a lot of the traditional Disney music, you know, songs from the uh, 40s and all that stuff. I don't know who the arranger was. I don't know who put the show together, but my gosh, it was it was really, really well done. And, um, you know, everybody's standing outside and they're shooting the fountains up and they're projecting the pictures on, on the spray. And this music is just screaming at you, but my gosh, it was a good job. And um, all of the songs, of course, are all familiar. And they all give you a buzz. So I would say... Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's probably more to the point to say that I, I have seen a lot of these shows and couldn't tell you the one that I dislike. You know, I think they all work really pretty well. Great. I love the answer. Um, you said you're still learning even today. Uh, are there any other projects or, or things that you're working on that you could share? Uh, I'm not working on any film projects at the moment. I'm um, actually I'm on my way to to teach a class over at USC in, in film music, doing a class in orchestration. So uh, I'm going to share what, I, what I've been learning and what I know to a bunch of other people, and hopefully they will, um, they will get to be better than me and produce some good music in the future. Excellent. Well, I want to direct the listeners over to brucebroughton.com. I'll put a link to it in this week's show notes. Uh, and Mr. Broughton, really, on behalf of myself, my family, who enjoys your work, and all of those who you continue to delight and entertain with your music and your talent, I want to thank you for all that you do and certainly for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's time for the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where every week on the show I'll ask you a history trivia question, maybe play a random sound clip or ask a where in the world have you heard this question to give you a chance to win a Walt Disney World prize package. Let's first go back to last week's trivia question, which in honor of the release of The Muppets on DVD and Blu-ray, get the bloopers, it's awesome. What song does Miss Piggy sing in her solo in Jim Henson's Muppet Vision 3D? And the answer, of course, was Dream a Little Dream, or Dream a Little Dream of Me. Thank you to everybody who entered. Pretty much all of you got this one correct. And the one winner that we randomly selected from all the correct entries was Tracy Fisher. So, Tracy, congratulations. Please email me your address. I'll get out your prize package, which includes all six of my audio tours on CD, Main Street, Adventureland, Fantasyland, Toontown, Liberty Square, and Frontierland. I'm also going to give you a copy of Celebrations Magazine, Issue 1, and a $25 iTunes gift card so you can rent or download the Muppets or the soundtrack from iTunes. Now, on to this week's Walt Disney World trivia question, which we'll do in honor of Bruce Broughton, our guest this week, who, as you know, conducted and composed the new score for Spaceship Earth. So, do you remember how easy it was to learn your ABCs? According to the narration in Spaceship Earth, who invented them? That's it. It's that simple. It's a one-word answer, and you can email contest at wdwradio.com. You have until Sunday at 11.59 p.m. That's Sunday, April 1st, April Fool's Day, to get your answers in. Again, to contest at wdwradio.com. We'll randomly select from all the correct winners, and you know what? I'll copy that exact same prize package as well, and maybe even include a little something extra special that I brought back from the Disney Fantasy. Stay tuned next week. To find out who the winner is, find out the answer. And for next week's Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, have fun. Good luck. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Please come by the show notes over at www.radio.com. Leave and comment there your favorite piece of Bruce Broughton music in the Disney theme parks or maybe in the Disney animated films. While you're on the site, be sure and check out our blog with multiple blog posts from different contributors throughout the day, our free discussion forums, polls, 
contests, videos, and lots more. Speaking of videos, I literally just got off the Disney Fantasy, Disney's newest vessel in the cruise line fleet. I want to first thank all of you who joined us for our live broadcasts for both from the port and on board the ship. And while I was there for the past three days, I took lots of video, did a number of interviews. We're, of course, going to have a recap, discussion, reviews, and so much more. You'll be able to find that on the site by visiting wdwradiocom slash fantasy. Also, I'll post updates, some additional information over on Twitter as well. And as long as we're talking about Disney cruises, don't forget you can still join us on our WDW Radio Cruise aboard the Disney Dream, November 4th through the 8th, 2012. Looking forward to having another great group again this year. And of course, our very, very special guest, Richard M. Sherman of the Sherman Brothers, is going to st- share his stories and music and lots more exclusively with our group. You can get more information as well as a link to getting a free, no obligation quote by visiting www.radiocruise.com. And again, while there are cabins still available, I would highly suggest getting a quote and booking now as rates will invariably go up. And of course, at some point, the ship will sell out, especially for our group uh, to share what's going on with Richard Sherman. Again, visit www.radiocruise.com. And don't forget that I also want you to be part of the show. So if you have a question you want answered on the air, you can email me at lou at www.radio.com. Or call the voicemail. You can be heard on the air at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Also, in addition to the podcast and videos, come by every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern over at www.radiolive.com. There we'll have the weekly WDW newscast where you can watch, chat, and ask and answer questions. Be part of our live broadcast and then stay and chat with us for a while afterwards. And if you can't catch it live, I'll post the video on the blog and the audio in the iTunes feed as well. And don't forget, our next WDW Radio Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World is going to be this Saturday, March 31st. It's going to be in downtown Disney from 1230 to 2 o'clock over at the downtown Disney dock, the lower-level seating area between Captain Jack's and the Margarita Bar right across from Gear Deli's. Come down, spend some time getting to meet other members of the WDW Radio family, and then what we're going to do is around 2 o'clock, we're going to head on over to the Art of Disney, located very close by, to see our friend Alex Mayer from the Disney Design Group, who's making a special appearance there. He's going to be exhibiting his artwork and premiering two new pieces, a Tink and Bambi and Friends. I'll put a link in this week's show notes for more information where you can visit www.radio.com and click on the Events tab. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my, of course, official and recommended travel provider. Listen, whether you're going to Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line or Adventures by Disney, Becky Mankin and her team of agents not only give you the best possible prices, all available discounts, but really the incredible level of personal service is what I think separates them from everyone else. And of course, all at no extra cost to you. You can visit them over at mousefantravel.com. When you're coming to Walt Disney World, maybe you want something a little bit bigger. Bring in the extended family down. You want your own pool, spa, kitchen, game room, multiple master bedrooms with some great Disney theming. You can check those out over at allstarvacationhomes.com. And if you want to stay right in the heart of Walt Disney World, my favorite place to eat and visit, and of course, stay in the incredibly heavenly beds, is over at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin. Check out Kimonos, Blue Zoo, Il Molinos and Shula, the Mandara Spa, and lots more over at swananddolphin.com. And of course, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tell your friends. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links on Facebook, Google+, Pinterest, or wherever it may be. And please come by, rate and review the show over in iTunes as well. And finally, don't forget that there is no time like right now to start taking those first steps towards pursuing your passion and doing what you love each and every day. And when you do, always keep moving forward. So until next time, have a great week, everybody. See ya. Hi, Lou. Jen Tremley from Bristol, Connecticut. Just wanted to call in and say hi. Just finished this week's show, 259, about Dinosaur. It's one of my favorite rides in Animal Kingdom. Um, I've always been um, a fan of it, even when it was Countdown to Extinction. Um, It's just a cool ride. Um, I really like the uh, ride vehicles. I like the fact that it is a quote-unquote thrill ride, but... um, you know, you don't get off of it feeling, at least I don't, I don't get off of it feeling, you know, ill. Um, it's just cool, you know. Um, the dinosaur still scares the bejesus out of me every time um, it, you know, gets in our face, the, the uh, big one at the end there, the Carnotaurus or whatever. 
Um, and it's just a cool ride. I really, I, I always make sure that I hit it every time I go, um, sometimes several times when I'm down there. So it was a very cool DSI uh, show with Ryan and um, just wanted to say hi and I uh, haven't called in for a couple weeks and I hope everyone's doing well and I uh, just wanted to give a shout out to the WDW family. Uh, look forward to um, uh, the anniversary show coming up and uh, I also liked uh, last week's show about the best lounges in Walt Disney World. So keep up the great work and we'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You've got a Yeah!